hosting the Brain Can Do podcast. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Brain Can Do podcast. I'm your host, Ben Stevenson. Before we get started, I want to say a massive thank you to Serena and Zara at Queen Anne School for providing us with the intro and for all the support that they've given us. So, the Brain Can Do podcast, episode one. What's this all going to be about? When we decided to start a podcast, we wanted to really look at doing three things. Firstly, we want to share with you the work we're doing at Brain Can Do. Here, we use neuroscience and psychological research to improve education practice. So whether you're a teacher, a student or a parent, hope that you find these podcasts informative and useful. The second thing that we want to do is to create a network of like-minded individuals. On Facebook, you can join the Brain Can Do Network and already see about some of the work that we're doing, whether it's research, making resources, consulting in other schools or providing teacher training there's a lot going on brain can do and we want more and more people to to join us and share their ideas finally and probably for me the most important reason that i started this podcast is that i want you to join me as i conduct my own sort of mini experiment and series of interviews looking into what makes individuals successful my background is that i'm currently a director of sixth form and teacher of psychology but i got into teaching through a bit of a obscure route. My background is in sports psychology and I was working as a sports consultant for many years with both elite and amateur individuals. I also created a sports coaching company for primary schools trying to find fun and engaging ways to get young children involved in sports particularly football based. The opportunity came up to teach part-time psychology for a few years uh, which I took And then I got to a point in my career where I had to make a decision. I had these three different routes. Did I want to go down the coaching business? Did I want to go down the sports consultancy business? Or did I want to go down the teaching route? And ultimately, it was my parents who gave me advice that's always stuck with me. They said, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you make sure you enjoy what you're doing and that you do it well. And for me, out of everything that I was doing, teaching was the thing that I was enjoying the most. So that is the path that I went down, but I've never lost that sort of psychological research element within me. And really, the bulk of this podcast is going to be individuals sharing with me their stories of success. And what better place to start than headmistress of Queen Anne School, founder and CEO of Brain Can Do, Julia Harrington. Julia, how are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. Very excited for this interview, our flagship launch of the Brain Can Do podcast. So we'll get sort of straight into this. So I understand you studied politics as your degree. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about your your early career? Because you didn't go straight into teaching, did you? No, I didn't. Um, I studied um, history and government and politics um, at university. And then uh, I always really wanted to go into journalism. That was my first love. And so I actually ended up uh, working at a company called Now Magazine, which was, and I worked with the political desk there. And so I thought I was all set there to become a a journalist. I was particularly interested in terrorism. Um, uh, But my mother became ill and I needed to return to South Wales to help look after her and look after the family businesses. So that uh, didn't pan out as I thought it might do. And then when I came back, 
uh, into London, I got a job with the Independent Television Companies Association, which is the company, which was the um, the organisation that looked after the sixteen, as they were then, independent television companies. And I worked for the legal advisor, so I was working on uh, all sorts of different things. Uh, it was a time many years ago, which seems a bit odd, when um, Channel Four was being set up, Breakfast Television was being set up. And satellite television was just beginning to come into play. I remember looking at a map and the satellite footprint just about came over the south of England. And uh, we've come a long way since then. Perfect. And then following in from that, I understand that you got involved in sort of the statistical side of, of television. Yes. That you were perhaps uh, missold your dream career to start <laughs> with. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, there's something called the Broadcasters Audience Research Board, which does the research for how many people are watching television. And of course, this was particularly interesting to the ITV companies for whom the advertising revenue was the key and therefore they needed to know how many people were watching a programme before they could actually put their their costings onto the adverts. And the government, around about 1980, I think, decided that, um, or maybe it was earlier, um, that they, um, Barb, as it was called, so this was BBC and ITV, uh, who ha- who owned this company, Barb, who did the research, needed to find out what people thought of television programmes as well as how many people were watching. So I put my hand up for this job, got it, to um, find myself working in the basement of one of the subsidiary companies, one of the ITV companies in central London, with nobody interested at all in what people thought of TV programmes. And I remember distinctly there was a window and there was a wall about six inches away and I thought, oh my goodness, this is not the dream job I thought it was. So I could do two things. I could sit there for the rest of my life or I could try to make it work. And what I did was I did a crash course in statistics for which my main reading was How to Lie with Statistics, a wonderful book. Um, And I then found a way to present the evidence. So appreciation indices, so I would put those together so that uh, the broadcasters to see could see how interested people were in programmes and for the advertisers it enabled them to see not only who was how many people were watching it but where the interest was which played into the sale of advertising and then I managed to persuade a lot of the producers that finding out what people thought of their programmes was actually quite good which didn't uh, when I first started they weren't interested at all in what I was doing but by the time I finished I had them phoning me up saying please could you run a piece of research on this programme because of course it helped them because they could go back to the, uh, the the people who were commissioning the programmes and saying, look, you know, I told you this was a good programme. So I was really pleased with that, but it was a bit of an accident and really a good example of um, when things don't go well, you can still do something about it if you are creative and determined. I love that. You've sort of taken that opportunity, so you sort of missold. This wasn't the exciting job you thought it would be, um, but you could have carried on going down that mundane level, mm. but actually you... You took it amongst yourself to go, what can I make the best of this situation? And as you say, you had people sort of knocking on your door, asking for your sort of mm. advice and how you could support them. Um, understand, so from then you went and had your children and returning to that industry in a male-dominated world um, was quite a difficult experience. Well, yeah, well, um, in between that, so I then, I then actually was promoted to be one of the management executives for the general secretary. And then I was working with the finance directors and the managing directors and the marketing people, etc., very male-dominated world. It was it was ITV in the early eighties, um, and um, I then had my children. I had twins. Was my first pregnancy, um, and I found when I came back to work, actually, I was I was. It was quite groundbreaking that they let me do this. I came back on a six-day fortnight, which was extraordinary. The first time I think anybody had ever done that. 
Um, but I, I remember going in and saying, look, you know, I know that you're probably going to say no, but I don't think I can come back full time. I've got twins. And they went, oh, no, six day fortnight, absolutely fine, which was great. Um, but I did find it was very much still a very male dominated world, very intense world. And therefore, you know, if something was coming up in the House of Commons, I don't know, five o'clock in the evening, it would be we need to write this piece. You need to do this research. And I'd have to say, no, I'm going home to bath the babies or whatever it was I was doing. Um, and eventually I realised that people in that industry tended to see me as, you know, when the first question I would be asked by the MDs was, how are the children? I thought, well, actually, yeah, what, what am I doing here, you know, really? Because I don't think I'm being taken seriously. Any, you know, and I didn't blame anybody for that. It was just the way of the world at that time. Um, so I decided, which was a hard decision, uh, by then, um, I think I'd had my son as well, or maybe I hadn't, I don't, no, no, I hadn't had my son. Um, so I decided to give up work and just look after the children, um, which I did, I then had my son. Then in about, oh, I don't know which year it was actually, but I think that my children were about four, I think actually, I decided I was, I was l loving being with them, but very bored. And so I decided to do a, um, a psychodynamic counselling course, which uh, was... Um, something I was very interested in, why do adults struggle with mental health issues and the things that they do struggle with, and found that lots of it was based in childhood experiences, because I didn't know that the psychodynamic counselling course would tell me this, because I, didn't, I only did it that course because it was convenient, but actually it turned out to be a really, really interesting piece of look, the, the way in which the mind works and the way in which I, didn't, I had no idea at that point how much it was going to feed into my future and brain can do, but actually the way in which our childhood experiences frame the way that we shape the way we frame the world and what you can do to change it if you need to. Um, but I also decided that um, being a counsellor was difficult because most of your work was evening work. Remember, I had young children at the time. So I thought it would be a really good idea to train as a teacher. And I was very lucky in that a, a local school had some friends there and they said, oh, come and train here, we need to... You know, training history department, which is what I did, and I have to say that my main pro motivation was because teachers have good holidays, <laughs> and I thought that fit with the family, ever practical. Um, so off I went and did my teacher training course. Um, I did find that I, I, I did train as a psychiatric council a counsellor. It took me three years and worked as a counsellor for a little while, but then found that actually teaching became the main game for me. Um, and I went to work at a school in Godalming uh, called Prizefield, um, where again, I, I, I always say I'm, uh, um, I'm not a career head. It didn't occur to me that I would become a headmistress. I thought I would just be a teacher. Um, but opportunities came up and I was encouraged by the head teacher there, Jenny Dwyer, who's uh, still a great friend, and um, took those opportunities, even though they were quite big steps to take. And, and then became deputy head and then became head here at Queen Anne's. Amazing, brilliant. What a sort of path that you've gone on there. And it sounds like a lot of what you were doing early on in your career sort of shaped and prepared you to be a, be a head teacher. Well, yeah, and certainly all the research I did with the quality research coordinator certainly helped me with the research I'm doing with Brain Can Do, but I didn't know that and neither could I have known it. And yeah, it's an, inter it's, it, it's, it's an interesting... Thing, isn't it really yeah yeah I think what you show is there's not a correct path to take no. for, for anyone listening particularly students in terms of career path mm. that you didn't set out finishing your degree getting sort of jobs in the TV industry to think you're going to be a head teacher one day no 
but a lot of what you've sort of experienced built up that way. And also for teachers listening, there isn't one sort of teacher. Mm. Um, yeah. But I think one question I've got for you that, that a lot of people want to ask, as a head teacher, what do you look for when you're interviewing staff coming to you? What are the things that make a sort of candidate stand out for you? Um, there are lots of things, as I'm sure you're not surprised to hear. Um, but I think the main thing for me, I always say most things you can you can train or teach people. What you can't train or teach them or put into them is that passion and that energy uh, that you've either got or you haven't got. So to me, that would be the overriding thing that would make the big difference. You know, is is this the right person? Uh, anything else can be taught and trained. I mean, obviously, that, there's a limit within that. You know, so clearly, you've got to have the right qualifications. You've got to be right on the safeguarding, all of those things. But once you've got all of those things right, the main thing is that that kind of real, the 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 real passion and that you know is going to inspire the students and is going to be the person who's going to come and say, "I've had an idea. What do you think? Can I do this? That's what I want." Perfect. You can see that when you talk to someone, if there's something they're passionate about, they have that spark. Yeah. And I always think that if the teacher has the spark, it will instill it in mm. the students. Yeah. Um, and for you, that that spark clearly is is brain can do. So yes. how takes us neatly onto brain can do. Perfect. Look at that. I'm, I'm learning already. First day on the job. So how did this this come about? Something that clearly you were interested yeah. in, sort of the mind from a long time. Mm. How does that interest become? Become what it was. Well, again, it was an interesting journey. Um, uh, I guess I hadn't really thought very much about it. I suppose I'd always been um, st- well, still interested in, in the way people worked and thought. I'd used my counselling training I, I, quite a lot in dealing with people, being able to intuit where they were really coming from. So I suppose I'd always kept that up, even though I wasn't officially a counsellor. Um, I had done some neurolinguistic programming when I was at uh, Prizefield, which I'd, I'd done a course with that again, getting people to reframe. I'm a big fan of neuro linguistic programming, um, but here I think it really kicked off when we had um, uh, Dr. Ian Devonshire, who was a neuroscientist from Oxford University, came. I think the psychology department had organised this, and um, he said he was bringing two brains with him. And I must admit, I must have had my health and safety hat on. I thought, two real brains from aldehyde. I'd better go over there and see what's going on. And so I went, and uh, clearly it was all safe, etc. But he showed us what fMRI scanning and what we could now do when we were looking inside the brain. And he he, he talked we we talked a lot about the way in which the science had developed, so that we could actually, where psychologists tend to look at behaviour, neuroscience looks at that electrical activity. And I thought, wow, how can teachers not know this stuff? How can we possibly be trying to get kids to learn and to understand about their own well-being when we don't know about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and the stages of development and the fact that adolescence is this great big change going on. Teachers need to know this. And so that was the start of the journey, really. And then I enrolled in some adult education courses at Oxford University with Dr. Anna Skarner, who's now a good friend of mine and was on the Brain Can Do Board for a while, um, which was really just out of interest more than anything, but fed into the development of Brain Can Do within the school, really. Brain Can Do started as Life and Learning, was the, pro- was the name of it, actually. And we started with the, um, uh, I can't think of what it is now, but the Habits of Life, Habits of Living, I think it was. Um, and I think eventually, when, when we were getting to the stage, where we clearly had quite a lot of momentum. And one of the parents said to me, who was an expert in branding, he said, Life and Learning's a terrible name. 
<laughs> and uh, so we came up with Brain Can Do because he researched to see what was out there that we could use. And Brain Can Do was the only one. So it's not a great name, I know, but it was the only one that was still available. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said well, look at Google. What does Google mean? Nothing, but it's just come to, it's what it comes to stand for. So I hope the Brain Can Do is, no, obviously we're not Google, but I hope we're, we're, we're getting to the point where it stands for something very clear. Excellent. We can be the educational version of Google. The educational the version, uh, yes. Um, confession time from me now, someone who's, who's worked for you for three years um, in Brain Can Do as well. Um, biopsychology was my least favourite module at university. It was always my lowest mark. Um, being someone who is very much a social psychologist and talking to a lot of other teachers who are interested in, mm. in improving and developing, but the term neuroscience sometimes scares people off. And I know yeah. from working close to hand that it's not something to be scared of. But yeah. what do you say to those teachers who see the word neuroscience and think... And think it's... Well, yeah, do you know, that's a very good point, actually, because because I studied history and politics, and I always... I was in the era when you... When you took your GCSEs, you either had to choose history or physics. And uh, the, our physics teacher um, wouldn't teach the girls. I was at a grammar school and he would send all the girls to the back of the class and say, you, you go to the back of the class because you're not going to understand it anyway. Now, I wanted to be a vet at the time, so I was desperate to be able to do the sciences, but didn't really manage to get on top of that, even though I was trying to listen how, very hard to what the boys were being taught. Um, so when I started to get interested in this, um, a big factor in this was we had... Um, Susan Greenfield, who of course is a great neuroscientist, and she came to do our speech day. And I think we were still life and learning at that stage, not brain can do. And I was sitting having lunch with her and, and uh, talking to her about this. And I said, I'd really love to do a master's in educational neuroscience, but I'm not a scientist. And she told me that she had been a classicist, I think. And uh, she similarly had wanted to go into this area. And her, her I don't, don't know who it was, professor said, for goodness sake, of course you can do it. And she got into it. And I thought, well, Susan Greenfield can do it. Perhaps I can do it. So I'm now doing a master's in educational neuroscience. And I must admit, I did find um, the first two, two uh, modules were quite tough. Uh, genetics was one of them. In fact, my daughter is a geneticist. She's a doctor a geneticist. And I wrote my draft paper and sent it to her. I said, could you just cut an out of it? And she, she was so harsh. She said, Mum, this is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but she was right. So I had to go back to the drawing board on that. So it has been quite a... But I am... One of the best things is I, I want to have an MSc in Educational Neuroscience because it will help me to understand that, of course, I can do science. And actually, it's... If I can do science, then anybody can. But neuroscience isn't really... Yeah, you can go into the deep side of it and it is really, really difficult. But for teachers, really, it's about translating the findings of the researchers into practice. And for that, you don't need to be a neuroscientist or even really a scientist. It's about translating the findings. They will do, do all of that for you. And it is very, very straightforward to really understand what's going on in the brain without having to uh, use the very deep uh, research that, that, they, that they will do. The lovely thing about Brain Can Do is we work with university researchers, at, uh, so Reading, Goldsmiths, etc., and uh, and it's a really a real privilege to work with people who are just looking at the detail of it. But it also makes you realise that uh, some of the science that they will get very excited about, I will say, well, what does that tell us in the classroom? Not very much. And so they say, OK, well, do you want us to devise something slightly different? 
so that you can get a bit of what you need. So that collaboration, which is what Brain Can Do does, it bridges the gap between scientists and educationalists, which is the thing that's missing in the system. And that's where the work of the Centre for Educational Neuroscience, which is the organisation that I'm doing my um, master's through, University of Birkbeck and UCL, is passionate about. We need to get educationalists talking to the scientists so that we can translate all of the wonderful things they're finding out about the human brain and particularly the adolescent and the child's brain. Perfect. I think that's a really important point for people to hear. If you're a, a teacher, deputy head, head teacher, and you want to speak to Brain Can Do about your sort of CPD budget and how we can come and help, we're not the people that are going to rock up with the brains. We are not there <laughs> going to be, unfortunately, we're not going to be getting your teachers to dissect brains and talking through that side of things. So it's about taking what the neuroscience research tells us and converting it into best practices in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some number of our teachers have, have run their own little research projects. So again, it's great to be a research school where you can do that. So, you know, if you want to know your particular cohort, what we do know is that, no, as I'm sure everybody knows, no two brains are the same and that the environment is critical. So every single class is going to be different. But you can actually run your own little uh, experiments to see whether or not different things work effectively and that can help you and also inform your students and give a a greater sense of agency I think to both the teacher and the students actually in that they are actually not just um, the teacher not just delivering things that uh, they're actually seeing how it plays out in the classroom and the students feel this is really for us and that's we find I think at Queen Anne's a really big benefit of doing uh, focused focused work uh, in terms of research within the classroom. Perfect. What advice would you give to a teacher who's listening to this and they want to get involved either at an individual or a school level with, with Brain Can Do? What, what would you say to Just them? Just get in touch with us. We've got a number of people who are, are working with us and we are doing lots of different things actually. We're helping uh, teachers to do bits of research in their own school. We can provide different training courses, inset training. Um, and actually we're also looking for consultants who can actually deliver some of the Brain Can Do programmes which have been written and because we're now um, spreading our wings and going into lots of different schools we, we do need people who, who can help us deliver the work. Perfect, it's one of the exciting things uh, developing something like this is that we're not set in stone so if people have ideas they want to talk to us about what they're doing as Julia says get in touch with us and we mm. can really sort of look at how we can help and support you. Um, final question for today then Julia um, and not if I've still got a job at the end of this interview <laughs> um, but the future um, for those of you who don't know Julia um, is in the process of um, sort of stepping down as head teacher of Queen Anne School mm. from sort of uh, December 21 January 2022 mm. um, and it's going to be full-time brain can do so what's the the future of brain can do yeah I'm glad you use the word stepping down not retiring yeah but the R word we do not use um uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. I've got, I've had such a different, diverse career, and I'm really looking forward to the next stage. So, what I want to do, I mean, Brain Can Do is now so busy and so active, and um, uh, what I will be doing is looking at developing different programs. So, we'd be developing the COVID anxiety workshops, which has, have really been helping students, parents, and teachers understand why this particular. Um, the, the lockdowns and COVID anxiety has been particularly impactful on adolescents because of the changes that are happening in their brains and the fact that they're actually the way that they develop, they need that, they crave that peer support. And of course, it's one thing you can't do in a lockdown. And we're now developing a, a flourishing programme based on character. We're doing teacher training. We've actually got a teacher training programme, Neuroscience for Teachers, which uh, is just 
finishing is six months running for six months it will finish in july so setting up more teacher training within that so developing programs offering um research opportunities so that we can go into schools and do some consultancy and also just developing my thinking on what it is that educationalists need to know about the brain to be able to do their jobs to the very best of their ability and also to be more fulfilled so one of the parts of work that we're looking at with the neuroscience for teachers is does understanding about neuroscience help you to feel more fulfilled in your work and i hope that it will do um, but that's something which again i want to want to look at in in depth really so it's looking at the next level and of course i've got to finish my master's so Not a lot more on. science yeah so a packed <laughs> schedule no no stopping you anytime soon uh, julia thanks so much for your, your time today um, and i'm sure that we'll uh, have you on again soon thank you very much So there you've heard from Julia Harrington. For me, the biggest takeaway there on her story of success is this whole idea that anything can be taught, but what you need to bring to the table is your own passion and your enthusiasm. And for me, in terms of criteria for successful individuals, I think that definitely stands true. That's everything for episode one of the Brain Can Do podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, If you are on Facebook, please join the Brain Can Do network. Uh, Visit us at braincando.com and let us know what you thought of the podcast, anything you'd like us to cover on in future episodes at info at braincando.com. I've been Ben Stevenson. Hope you all have a great day.